Welcome to the Voices from the Road podcast, episode number two, with me, Valerie Singleton. In this programme, we take an unauthorised trip in an amphibious car on the Shropshire Union Canal, and we hear what happened when one MG driver on his first European journey was confronted at gunpoint by police on the Italian border. But first, we head to 1960 and meet Sylvia Watts, who is turning her attention to the process of learning to drive. She doesn't appear to have been in any mad rush. After all, she was born in November 1921, so, I mean, she could already have been driving for more than 20 years by now. In this episode, Sylvia, now at the age of 100, talks to Roger Crisp about how she embarked on the process, what she remembers of the roads, and in particular how she didn't take kindly to the interruptions from her late husband in the passenger seat when she was out practising. I was born in Tulse Hill in London. I well remember that one did not have automatic directional signals. One had to put one's arm out of an open window (laughs) and make appropriate signs with your hand as to whether you were going to turn right or left, also as to whether you were slowing down to stop. I learnt to drive initially by, I had a little bit of experience with the technicalities of the car through pottering about on a disused airfield outside Colchester, where my husband used to take me before I got a learner's licence. So anyway, eventually I booked six lessons with the British School of Motoring and my husband used to take me out to re-practice and so on. And he was continually criticising, asking me why I did this and why I did that. And I said, well, that is what the instructor told me to do. And so he said, well, you can finish those lessons you have booked. Please don't book any more. I will teach you to drive properly. So, which I could well believe because I knew he was, in fact, a very good driver. On one occasion when I was out with him, he told me I was using the handbrake wrongly. I was pulling it to the side. I said, I don't think so. He said, yes, you you are. You're doing so and so. You should do it like this. And he got hold of it and gave it a pull and it came off in his hand. So I said, oh, I didn't realize you had to take it off. (laughs) But I have to say that we remained married even after I'd had all these driving lessons. Do you remember anything about the car or were there many cars around in that at that time? There were quite a lot of cars, but I suppose compared with today, there were not because very few average households had a private car. Um, the only car... I would have had any experience of was probably going in a taxi somewhere and I can't remember much about that as a small child. Once you had learned to drive, um, what kind of things do you remember happening to you? Oh, (laughs) well now, at this time that I'm going to tell you about, we were living in Colchester. My husband had been posted there and my hometown was Whitstable in Kent. I had a message from my sister who lived in Beckenham and who had had my father staying with her for a while, that she'd had to take him, send send him home, if you please, she didn't have a car, send him home by train for some reason or other, and she was rather worried about him. Could we go down and see him? Because she knew that we had a car. So then we went down to Whitstable from Colchester, and sure enough, my father was not very well at all. So we, by that time, it was beginning to snow. 
And we managed to get Dad into the car and we started off back to Colchester. And as we drove back to Colchester, the snow got thicker and thicker and thicker. And by the time we got to Colchester, we ran into a snowdrift on the corner of the estate on which we lived. And I had to get out of the car and go to a nearby house and ask the poor man to come out in the awful weather and dig us out, which he very willingly did. He was very kind. And he came out with a big shovel because it was something my husband couldn't do. He was not strong enough. And we finally got my father back to the house. I do remember the awful feeling of being snowed in and not being able to get out of it in these great drifts. And you got home safely anyway? We got home safely eventually, eventually, yes. Whilst we were living in Colchester, sometimes on a Sunday morning, we would take a car run out to West Mersey Island just to give the children a bit of fresh air. And we duly did that on one particular Sunday. In order to get to West Mersey Island, you had to cross a causeway, which at high tide would be submerged. But when we got there on that occasion, there was just a little water over the causeway. And my husband said, oh, that little car's just come across all right. We've got a bigger car than that. We'll be all right. I said, are you sure? Yes, yes, come on, let's go. So we started off across the causeway. But the tide was running faster than it He had estimated because we got about halfway across and we were submerged, not right up to the roof, fortunately, but up to the tops of the seats. (laughs) We had two young children in in the back with a dog and they hauled the dog up onto the seat and put their feet up on the seat and hoped for the best. But buses coming through it could get through. And of course, they made the, they sloshed the water about and made the car rock, whereupon my younger daughter nearly had hysterics in the back. So I fished about in the glove compartment and found a small tin of some sort. And I said, here you are, empty out the water in the car. Just realising, poor child, it was coming <laughs> anyway. So, But it gave her something to do. I seem to remember, it was a long time ago, and I seem to remember having some help from some young men who got out of a car and saw our difficulty and came and pushed us. They said, we're having trouble too, but come on, we'll help you. Mm. And they mm. pushed us. I think we must have got there eventually. And at the, the time it was time to come back, the tide had dropped a little bit. Mm-hmm. But of course, in the meantime, the seawater had got into the car engine and it was not happy. And I think on the way back, we had to dump it somewhere and go and get the garage people or somebody to come and drag it home. The car had to be thoroughly cleaned out and so on because it was all seawater. Another experience I had with driving, which was not very enjoyable, was when I took my daughter and her husband up to his row to see them off to Australia, where he had some sort of a job. On the way up, he drove the car to save me the trouble and instructed me to carefully check the route, look at it, and I had a road map there and so on, so that I knew exactly how to get back on my own. However, hadn't been very long out of Heathrow when all of a sudden all the lights went out everywhere. Complete blackout. There were no street lights. There were no lights in houses. There was nothing. All I had was a little torch in the car. And all the lights went. I don't know what had happened, but there was a complete breakdown of electricity in the roads. So there were no street. There were no directional signs lighted. 
there was nothing. And finally, I came to a pub, which was more like a sort of roadhouse, big place. I was trying to get back to where my friends lived in Surrey, near Hampton Court. They were off, I know, if I could find Hampton Court Road, I would know where to go, if I could see it. And um, anyway, found this pub, a sort of roadhouse place, and went in and said, and they all looked at me, because I went into the public bar, and the men all turned up around and looked at me, <laughs> curiously coming in, this little female, into their private property, as it were. And I said, I just want to know, I'm totally lost. I want to know where I am and how to get to wherever it was I was going. And they said, you are in Teddington. So I said, well, I don't really want to be in Teddington. Would you tell me how to get to so-and-so, whatever it was? And so they did. Yes, they directed me. Then, of course, I had the job of finding it. But I did get there. Obviously, I got back eventually, and my friends greeted me. By then, they hadn't got any blackout there, and they didn't know anything about it. They said, where on earth have you been? I said, you needn't say it like that. I don't know where I've been, and I told them what had happened. And they said, oh, my goodness, because they had no idea. They hadn't been blacked out at all. That was 100-year-old Sylvia Watts talking to Roger Crisp. You're listening to the Voices from the Road podcast with me, Valerie Singleton. Now, we fast forward to 1971. Early in the year, Idi Amin becomes president of Uganda, having managed to depose Milton Aboti. The third lunar landing takes place with the crew of Apollo 14. Rolls-Royce goes bankrupt and is nationalised. In Switzerland, women finally get the vote in state elections, but they still remain unable to vote in local polls. Evil Knievel sets a world record by jumping 19 cars on his motorbike in Ontario, Canada, and Arsenal defeats Spurs at White Hart Lane to collect the first division championship, and six days later they beat Liverpool 2-1 in the FA Cup final. In Eccleshall in Staffordshire, young Colin Parker is back from college for the weekend to the family home. A police house provided because his father is in the local constabulary. But the weekend takes an unusual and somewhat maritime twist, which Colin now explains. My story dates from 1971, uh, when I was at uh, college doing a, de a degree course. And one weekend I was home from college and I had a friend who ran a canal hire boat business on the Shropshire Union Canal. It turns out he had a friend who ran a car dealership in Birmingham and he had recently taken a amphi car in as part exchange. And this was an amphibious vehicle, largely based on a Triumph Herald. He had, had no interest whatsoever in Birmingham and came up with the idea that perhaps canal boat uh, enthusiasts would be more interested. So he persuaded my friend to take the amphi car on a trial basis and display it at his boatyard. So when I arrived home that weekend, he'd had it for about a week, I think, had some passing interest, but not a lot. Uh, and my first comment to him was, well, have you actually tried it yourself? And he said, well, I've driven it around the roads. I said, no, I meant on the water. And he said, no, not really. I couldn't leave anywhere I could access it. And I happened to know that in Market Drayton, which wasn't far away, there was a slipway down onto the Shropshire Union Canal. So accordingly, that evening, uh, it's in the summer, so it's quite light, 
we set off, we drove along the roads to uh, Market Drayton, checked uh, no authority figures were around, and gently drove down the slipway and into the, the Grand Union, it's, uh, sorry, the Shropshire Union Canal itself. Um, before you do that, it was a two-door vehicle, soft top, and there were sort of two big snail cam devices on the door. So you had to push those down really hard to pull the doors in and make a watertight seal. Then you had to engage the ballast pump, uh, bilge pump, make sure that was running properly. And then uh, you drove in as normal. And once you're in the water, you put the ordinary gearbox into neutral. And there's a second gear lever forward and reverse uh, for the propellers. There are two propellers on the back bumper. So we did that and set off. The steering just relied on the two front wheels. There was no separate rudder. So it was not at all responsive in the water. You had to uh, really think ahead if you needed to turn. The boat floated so that the headlights were just at water level. So as it was getting dusk, it looked uh, really strange, I'm sure, to anyone uh, seeing us approaching just these two headlamps apparently floating on the water. So we went along and just outside Market Drayton is the Turley flight. I think it's five locks. Uh, we decided just for devilment, we'd try and get the Amphicar through the first lock, which we did, taking great uh, care not to scratch it, of course. Turned around, back into the lock, back down and started back along the Shropshire Union, the way we'd come back towards the slipway. As we were going along, there were several moored pleasure boats there. And uh, my friend suddenly said, oh, that's, that's one of my boats there. Slow down when we get alongside that. So I slowed down. He then thumped on the hull. Of course, the, uh, the people in the boat were quite surprised to hear thumping from the water side of the boat. Leapt onto the deck to see what was going on. Recognised my friend who said, uh, oh, just, just checking you're happy with your holiday. Uh, I like to do this uh, with every boat, just drive out and see how they're getting on. And uh, I was extremely impressed with the uh, customer service. They were very happy and we carried on. Got to the slipway. You then had to get the front wheels onto the slipway, engage the normal gearbox. And with the propellers turning and the wheels now turning, you gradually creep back up the uh, slipway and back onto dry land. We then remembered to switch off the bilge pump, but we didn't remember to disengage the propellers. So we were going along the road for two or three miles with the propellers happily spinning away behind us under the uh, rear bumper until we, we remembered. The only possible danger of that was that my address at the time was actually the, uh, the police station in, in the local town. And if my dad had been on duty, he might have spotted us on the road with propellers spinning as we we're going along. But uh, he wasn't. So we got away with it. Were you ever at all at any point worried that you might sink? Only as we went down the slipway to enter the canal. None of us had uh, ever been in an amphibious car before. And of course, as we went in, the water started to come over the, the bonnet. We were probably going a little too fast down the slipway. So we slowed down a little bit, reduced the bow wave. And uh, once we were in, we were fine. Uh, the, it, it had a sort of double layer bottom to the boat, uh, to the car. Um, and there's no sign of any leakage, but it did mean it was quite heavy. And therefore, uh, not only was it not very agile on the water, it wasn't very agile on the road either. Okay. The Triumph Herald, of course, was renowned for a very tight turning circle, something like 25 feet, if I remember rightly. But the Amphicar had got something like a 40 foot turning circle. So, yes, not, uh, not the most manoeuvrable vehicle. Well, do you remember what happened to it once you'd had your little adventure in it? Where, where did it end up? Where did it go? Um, as, as far as I remember, 
the uh, the boatyard had no no real interest. One or two people looked it over, but nobody asked to go for a test drive or anything. So I think after a month, my friend gave it back to the chap in Birmingham, uh, the car dealer. I don't know how he got on with it. It was way beyond my means. I was a student at the time, so I had no interest in buying it. So yes, I lost touch with that. And in fact, uh, lost touch with my friend as well. So I haven't seen him since then either. That was Colin Parker, full steam ahead in an amphibious car on the Shropshire Union Canal. Just don't tell the police. Finally for this episode, our automotive blackjack wheel comes to a stop in 1975. Margaret Thatcher becomes leader of the Conservative Party, communist forces take Saigon and the Vietnam War ends. The film Jaws is released, the Suez Canal opens for the first time since the Six-Day War and inflation in the UK spirals out of control. Keith Bowden is living in Northampton and has been invited by close friends to take a trip to a villa in the south of France. This will be Keith's first drive abroad. He has an MGB GT and his friend Michael is in an MGB Roadster. Off they go, blissfully unaware of the brush with authority they are soon to have at the Italian border. This event took place in 1975. I lived in Northampton and we were invited by uh, close friends to take a trip to the south of France, to a villa in the south of France. And I'll bear in mind, I'd never driven abroad at that stage. I had an MGB GT. My friend Michael had an MGB Roadster. We left Northampton at half past five um, on a Friday evening, which was rather ridiculous, but that's the only way we could do it after leaving work. And we drove to Dover using the old AA route around London. This is pre-M25. The M25 roughly follows this route, of course. We drove down to Dover and arrived at Dover round about... 10.30 and we were just about, well we were not just about, we were actually changing the headlights, putting the stickers, the headlamp deflector stickers onto the fronts of the cars when uh, this fellow came across and said, hurry up, you can be the last two cars on an earlier ferry. So uh, we did and we drove out of the old port at Calais at about one in the morning across the old cobblestones that some people may remember. And then we just drove on. Um, we drove through fog on the Somme, which was quite interesting in itself. And our first stop uh, for petrol was at Trois at five o'clock in the morning. And it's an image that sticks in my mind. We filled up and Michael and I went into the cafe uh, just to get a biscuit or something or other. And there were the workers about to go off to work, all sipping their coffee with a shot of spirits beside them, which really sort of chuffed me. That drove on south, no motorways in France at that stage. It was down the old N6 and um, stopped west of Grenoble, where my friend suggested that instead of just going down the N6 and then trailing along the coast, we take the old Monte Carlo route to the coast. Uh, to Monton, which was our destination next to Monte Carlo. 
we drove the route through up through the mountains through, and then through Dean, Grass and all the other villages, etc., and arrived in Monton at 10.15 at night. Tell us more about the, the, the MGBGT, how, how you came to, to own it and um, all the things that you particularly liked about it. Well, I'd had, I was, well, basically from knee-high to a grasshopper. My father uh, always had cars and such like, and all in my family's always had cars, and you know, way back. And I'd had all the usual sort of rubbish and such like, things that fell apart, like my VW Beetle. I, I'd seen so many pictures and seen, you know, MGBs at that stage, you know, you know think, oh, gosh, that, that's the bee's knees. I found one through adverts, no internet in those days. Went to collect this car. In fact, I got it from a garage in Christchurch in Bournemouth, drove all the way back up to Northampton. And then for the rest of the time I had it, (laughs) sounds silly, I just nurtured it, polished it, etc. You know, had it serviced and such like. It was just a joy to to drive because of my driving position and such like i mean the the gear stick was you could put your hand at your arm on the middle rest and just flick through the through the gearbox the only time you had to move your left arm was to um, flick in and out of overdrive what about driving in france then so there was your first experience so any any yeah. Of hairy moments or mishaps. The old port in Calais, not like the new one, which obviously I've driven through quite a number of times now. Uh, you came out into the town through that cobbled square, and um, I remember Michael dropped the top of the road and was signalling madly, you know, drive on the right. And I thought, yeah, I'm not that that sort of daft. Once we got onto the road towards uh, Bethune and places like that, uh, that because it was late at night as well and into the early hours of the morning obviously it was quite easy my my first encounter with uh, french drivers of the past you know the old dushevaux things and priority à droite was probably after we'd left and you know sort of early hours of the morning sort of six seven o'clock and it is um, again that's an abiding merit uh, memory, sort of wondering whether the road you could see ahead uh, had priority or what, where you could see a Dushevaux or an old Renault trundling towards the road and wondering whether he was actually going to stop to go straight across. You know, it was, um, but what, once I got, it, by the time we got down towards Grenoble, it was, uh, uh, you know, I'd, <laughs> well, I'd cracked it. And then, of course, when we were down there, the staying in Monton, uh, to drive the MGB along the Grand Corniche and into Monte Carlo. Yeah, okay, I didn't have a Rolls-Royce, an Aston Martin, whatever, but that was a bit of class. While we were staying in Monton, yeah. we decided to drive into Italy just because Villefranche was just across the road, uh, down yeah. then, went round towards Genoa, etc. But for, for whatever reason, I decided instead of taking the coast road to go up into the mountains and go into Italy that way, and I did, and I have to admit, I actually worried myself on a couple of occasions on some of the high roads through there because they were still pretty gravelly. I didn't fancy losing the back end of the MG up there. But we crested this hill, and 
in the road were two Alpha Juliettas parked across the road, uh, which had uh, blue lights on them. So you think, here we go. So I pulled up and seeing as the Carabinieri were armed, I didn't feel like doing a Bonnie and Clyde job rushing through. So I stopped and to be quite honest, I'll admit I was nervous. And these two guys with all the braid on the uniforms that all wandered across. And uh, I thought I, I was desperately trying to think of Italian words other than spaghetti and pasta and such like. He sort of walked up to the car and his mate was on the other side. Uh, one of them stood in front and he came to the window, wound the window down. He sort of signaled I get out. I thought, God, now what? And he just looked and he said, English. And I said, yes. You know, the, the, the way you do when you're nervous as well. Yes, yes. And he said, your car. Yes. I thought, thank God you speak Italian. And he said, MG. I said, yes. I, I, which was about the sum total of what I could muster at the time. He started looking around the car and he said, and he pointed to the Juliet. He said, you like Alpha? I said, yes. But I do prefer the MG. And he just sort of smiled and he went, you know, okay, okay, where are you going? We just sort of said, oh, down towards Villefranche. Mm. And his mate, by which time, had done three tours of the, the MG looking all around it and such like, didn't open the boot ring, not there was anything in there, and then um, waved us through. And I have to admit, for about a mile after that going downhill, I was still shaking a bit, thinking, my God, <laughs> what do was just happened. It was, it was, it was just one of those weird things. Obviously, not being um, used to uh, British police being armed and sort of stopping you in the middle of nowhere. It was, uh, it was just one of those things. But it, as I say, it did it has stuck in my mind that one. Keith Bowden recalling his nervous state when confronted by the Italian Carabinieri on his first motoring adventure in mainland Europe. And with that, we come to the end of this episode in the Voices from the Road podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and I look forward very much to introducing another fascinating selection from our podcast archive next time. By the way, might you be interested in taking part? If so, we'd love to hear from you if you have an idea to contribute to the Voices from the Road podcast. We've assembled a small editorial panel whose members will consider the merits of your idea. Once it gets the thumbs up, we can agree the format of your contribution and how the recording will take place. In its simplest form, it can be done via an online meeting, but if it deserves a little extra attention, then a recording on location or with a group of others is also possible. You'll find the contact details on the Voices from the Road website, so please do get in touch. But for now, from me, Valerie Singleton, it's goodbye. Goodbye.